Well, if you would take your copy of the scriptures now and turn in them to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and let's begin our, our time now by reading this passage of scripture together, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And as we read, let's remember, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. <clears throat> Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The greatest of all the Christmas carols, in my opinion, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It was composed in the 1730s by the evangelical preacher and hymn writer, Charles Wesley. The second stanza of that hymn reads this way. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. That line is a joyful reflection upon the truth which lies at the heart of Christmas. Theologians have come to call it the incarnation. If we were to describe the incarnation without poetry or emotion, we might say this, there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and according to an eternal agreement with the person of the Father, the person of the Son united himself to a human nature which had been conceived by the person of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a young virgin named Mary and was eventually born into the world as the man named Jesus. Jesus was, of course, still fully God, the eternal person of the Son, but he was now also fully man, the man Jesus of Nazareth. 
This is the doctrine of the incarnation taught in the Bible. But perhaps the second line of Wesley's famous Christmas carol is more fitting as a description of the incarnation because the incarnation is revealed to us in the scripture as good news, which should elicit wonder and great joy among men. Because the reason the divine Son of God became a man was so that he might deliver fallen men and women from the power and the penalty of their sin, all in fulfillment of the ancient promises of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus was born into the world as the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, who would save his people, all who would believe in him, from sin and death, and bring peace and justice to the earth through his righteous rule as God's anointed one. This is what Christmas is all about. It's about the incarnation and its joyous implications for a sin-cursed world of fallen men and women. And this Christmas Eve morning, as we've gathered for worship, I want to open up for you this passage which I read from Matthew's Gospel, which speaks to us about the incarnation. It recounts the story of the incarnation, a true story. And that's clear from the opening words of the text, which say, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But like all the stories in the New Testament, it intends to emphasize certain things about the event it describes so that we might be affected by them. In this case, Matthew intends, I think, to emphasize three main things in this description of the birth of Jesus. First, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit apart from any human father. You know, the most well-known account of Jesus' birth is actually recorded in a different gospel in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. There we're told how Joseph took his pregnant wife Mary to the city of Bethlehem in compliance with a decree of Caesar Augustus. And while they were there, Mary gave birth to Jesus in a stable because there was no room for them in the inn. You know the story. That description has the appearance of normalcy. It seems to describe a young couple uh, bearing their first child. But of course, we know that that's all is not what it seems in that story. Matthew's account tells us the rocky backstory which led up to that apparently tranquil scene and explains why it was anything but normal. Matthew takes us back to the betrothal period, which preceded Mary and Joseph's marriage and her bearing their firstborn son. As it says in verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, 
Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, a little background to betrothal in the ancient Near Eastern Jewish culture is in order here. Betrothal in this context was an actually legally binding contract to marry, which would have usually taken, uh, been arranged by the parents, apart from the consent of either child. It usually took place when the young man was about 19, when the young woman was about 13. And once a young woman was betrothed to a young man, she was considered bound to him, even though the wedding hadn't taken place yet. This, there was typically a, a significant period of time, in fact, between the betrothal and the actual wedding. And during that period, the husband would be frantically seeking to put together the dowry to pay her father. And then there would be a certain amount of time, uh, perhaps up to two years, that would lead up to the actual wedding. Only then would the husband take his new wife into his home. Now, during this period of delay between the betrothal and the wedding, the couple was to abstain from sexual relations. In fact, often they would have very little contact with each other in order to avoid any temptation in this regard. So, it would have been a shocking scandal when Mary was, quote, found to be with child during this betrothal period. We're told how it all happened in Luke's account of the gospel in Luke 1, 26-38. There it says that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary while she was betrothed to Joseph, and he said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And she responded, saying, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel explained, saying, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So when Mary became pregnant, she was still a virgin. She had not been unfaithful to Joseph, but as Matthew explained in verse 18 of our, con of our text, she was with child from the Holy Spirit. When Joseph found out, however, he would not have known that. He must have been shocked, deeply hurt, confused by Mary's pregnancy. On the one hand, Luke's gospel makes clear that Mary was a believer, that she was a godly young woman, and she must have tried to explain her innocence both to Joseph and to their respective parents, but on the other hand, she was a teenage girl, and her explanation would have seemed too incredible to be true. So Joseph must have concluded that, however out of character it may have seemed, Mary must have become pregnant through sexual immorality. Now once he concluded this, Joseph was faced with an excruciating decision. As I explained before, betrothal was treated like marriage. So, for instance, if you look at our text in verse 20, it says that 
Joseph had not taken Mary yet as his wife, but in verse 19, he's already called her husband. So if Mary had committed immorality with someone else, it would be considered adultery, which actually was a capital offense under the old covenant. And though the Romans did not permit the Jews by this time in history to enforce capital punishment, the Jewish tradition, the tradition of the rabbis at that time would have required Joseph to break off the betrothal under these kinds of circumstances. And typically this would have been a public act that would have resulted in Mary's permanent disgrace in their community. Indeed, breaking off the betrothal, which notice in verse 19 is described as divorce, seemed to be the only option which an honorable man could take in this situation. Because consider, if Joseph followed through with the marriage, what would people conclude? Everyone would assume that he was the father of her child, and that through fornication. And the disgrace of her action would now become his as well, though falsely. So as painful as it would be, not only to be betrayed by Mary, but also to lose her as well, Joseph concluded he must send her away. But, because he was not only a righteous man, but also a kind man, Joseph sought to spare Mary as much humiliation as possible in the process. So look, it says in verse 19, And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, behind the scenes, secretly even. No doubt, Joseph's decision to try and shield Mary from public disgrace was probably also due to a lingering doubt he had over her guilt. She must have urged him to believe her that she had not been unfaithful to him. And her apparent sincerity combined with her godly reputation must have left, must have left Joseph somewhat unsettled in this whole matter. At the end of the day, however, Mary's claim to be a pregnant virgin seemed untenable. Unless God intervened and told him otherwise, Joseph simply could not believe that that's what happened. And of course, God did intervene and tell Joseph in verse 20. There we read, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now I want to come back to this verse again under my next point. But let me just point out now the way God assured Joseph that Mary had not been unfaithful to him, that she had not become pregnant through immorality with another man, and that the child in her womb had not even been conceived by natural means at all, but by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. As Matthew pointed out in verses 22 through 23, this event was actually the ultimate fulfillment of an ancient prophecy 
in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where the prophet had said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. For those who might be skeptical, like Joseph initially was, that this really did happen, let me just say a few things. First, we can all agree that virgin conception doesn't happen normally. But the whole point of this account is that it wasn't a natural event at all, but a miracle. Second, we can all agree that virgin conceptions are not an everyday event. But again, that's the whole point of this account, that this was an exceptional event in history. And third, of course, you cannot believe in the virgin conception if you operate from a purely materialist worldview. But if you were to accept the worldview that is revealed in the Bible, that this universe was created and and is governed by an almighty God, well, then a virgin conception is not impossible at all, and there really is no reason we cannot believe this account of one taking place, however extraordinary it might be. The more important question, I think, is not whether the virgin conception happened, but why. The angel Gabriel's words to Mary in Luke one thirty-five get at the answer. There he told her this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The fact that Jesus was conceived through a woman was necessary for him to be a true man. But the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin apart from the contribution of a human father was also necessary for him to be a truly holy man, free from that original sin which all other human beings inherit from our very first father, Adam. Indeed, this child, Jesus, would be a new Adam, a second Adam, if you will, who would be the head of a new humanity, redeemed out from the old. Whereas the first Adam brought condemnation and death to all humanity through his first sin. This second Adam, Jesus, would bring righteousness and life to his people through his perfect obedience, even unto death. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Or again, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But you see, in order to fulfill this role as the second Adam, Jesus had to be both a true man and a sinless man, free from the guilt and the corruption which was transmitted to the rest of humanity from the first Adam, 
This is why Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit apart from a human father. That's the first thing that's emphasized in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. The second is that Jesus was born in such a way that he would be in the line of David. It's striking to note that while Joseph was not the father of the child in Mary's womb, yet God insisted that he still marry Mary, take her as his wife. So when the angel appeared to Joseph in the dream, notice he said to him in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It appears, in other words, that it was not mere happenstance that the Holy Spirit chose to bring about the conception of Jesus after Mary was betrothed to this man, Joseph. Joseph, in other words, was not unimportant to the role that this child in Mary's womb would fulfill. So, If Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, to use our modern lingo, why was it important for him to marry Jesus' mother? The answer is actually hinted at in the words of the angel that I just read to you from verse 20. There the angel had said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. It was important that Joseph take Mary as his wife because he was a descendant of David. And as Mary's husband, Joseph would, of course, become the legal father of Jesus, meaning that Jesus, too, would be considered a son of David, like his adopted father, Joseph. And this, in turn, would qualify Jesus to be the Christ. God's ultimate anointed Davidic king whom the prophets predicted would come out of David's line. This, by the way, is the whole point, at least one of the main points, of the genealogy that comes right before this text in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. It opens in verse 1, Matthew 1, verse 1, with these words, the book of of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And it ends with these words in verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. We should also add that it was the fact that Joseph, son of David, took Mary as his wife, which ended up ensuring that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Because Luke explained in Luke 2, 1 through 4, that around the time of Jesus' birth, the emperor of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, ordered everyone under his rule to travel to their own town to be registered, presumably for the purposes of taxation. And so it says... Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, 
who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And you know the rest of the story. It was this way that that ancient prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, would be fulfilled, which had predicted that the Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king, would be born in Bethlehem, the birthplace of David himself. So this story of Jesus' birth in Matthew 1 emphasizes that Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit so that he might be a sinless man and fulfill the role of the second Adam. It also emphasized that Joseph married Jesus' mother so that Jesus might be the son of David and fulfill the role of the promised Messiah. And the words which the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary in Luke 1, 31-33 might come to pass concerning Jesus. They had said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So that's the second main thing emphasized in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, that Jesus was born in such a way that he would be in the line of David. The third is that Jesus would save his people from their sins. So when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, verses 20 through 21, he not only ordered Joseph to go ahead and take Mary as his wife, explaining that her child had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, but he also told Joseph that he was to name the child a specific name after he was born. You see in verse 21, She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, the angel Gabriel had already told Mary in Luke one thirty one, that she would bear a son and that she was to call his name Jesus. Now an angel told Joseph the same thing, presumably so that he and Mary would be on the same page in this important matter. But why was it important that Mary's child be named Jesus? Well, Jesus is simply the way that your English Bibles translate the Greek name, Jesus. But Jesus itself is a Greek translation of a Hebrew name, Yeshua or Joshua in English. So the choice of this name, it's not significant because it was unique. I mean, Joshua, for obvious reasons, translated Jesus, was not an uncommon name in Israel. The reason it was significant as a choice of name for Mary's son, lay in its meaning. The name Joshua, Jesus, meant Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. And the Lord instructed Joseph to name Mary's son Jesus or Joshua because this name was a profound description of what of the work that he would accomplish as the Messiah. Jesus 
would be named Joshua, which meant Yahweh saves because he would save his people from their sins. Notice the nature of the salvation that this child, Jesus, would accomplish. You know, Israel, in Jesus' day, typically was expecting the Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king, the Lord's anointed. That's what Messiah means. They were expecting that God would raise him up in the last days to deliver them from the consequences of the exile. In other words, to liberate them from their Roman oppressors, to reestablish a geopolitical Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem, and then to extend his rule to the ends of the earth and, and bring riches and power and blessing to the nation of Israel. Instead, the angel told Joseph that the child Jesus would grow up to deliver Israel from a far more fundamental problem, the problem which had led not only to the exile of Israel, but had led to the fall of the human race and the entire created order in the beginning. He would save his people from their sins. What did that mean exactly? The prophets had predicted it. The gospels announce it. This child, Jesus, would be the promised Messiah, the Lord's ultimate anointed king, almighty and just, but gentle and kind. He would save his people from their sins by taking their sins upon himself and then bearing the judgment for them in their place upon the cross so that they might be forgiven. And then he would rise again on the third day, triumphant over sin, death, and the devil on behalf of his people and securing for them life, that is, new spiritual life by the Holy Spirit now as well as the hope of resurrection life unto glory in the last day. The Apostle Paul would describe it so well to the people of Jesus later on in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians 1, 13-15. He would say, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Christ. This is what the angel meant when he said to Joseph concerning Mary's child, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's worth noting also at this point that when the angel said of Jesus, he will save his people from their sins, it would turn out, you know this from the New Testament, that his people, the people of Jesus, would include everyone who believed in him, both from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. 
You remember how the Samaritans would say of Jesus in John 4.42, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And yet, as you consider the magnitude and the scope of this salvation, which the angel says that Jesus would accomplish for his people, we have to ask ourselves, well, how could this child in Mary's womb do all of this? I think Matthew actually goes on to provide the answer in verses 22 through 23, when he said, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here we see that the child in Mary's womb, yes, was truly human, but not merely human, but also divine. As the ancient prophet foretold in Isaiah 7.14, this child would rightly be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because he was God, come into the world as a man. As the prophet Isaiah went on to predict two chapters later in Isaiah 9.6, do you remember what he said? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, never had the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, been a better fit for a man than it was for this child in Mary's womb because he was Yahweh, the God of Israel, come down into the world which he had made as a man to save his people from their sins. So there are three things emphasized in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. Number one, that Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit apart from any human father. Number two, that Jesus was born in such a way that he would be in the line of David. And number three, that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Now, what can we learn from these three things? How should they impact our lives as we reflect upon them this Christmas Eve morning? Well, for one thing, this account reveals the true identity of Jesus, whose birth we're celebrating at Christmas, so that we might know him, that we might believe in him. It tells us that he was a true man, born of a woman, but conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit, apart from a human father, so that he might be without sin, a new Adam, through whom a new humanity might be redeemed and saved. It also tells us that Joseph, the son of David, married Jesus' mother so that Jesus might be the Christ, the son of David, and rule over God's people forever. It tells them that else that he was named Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, and Emmanuel, which means God with us, because he is Yahweh, the one true God 
come down into the world as a man so that he might save his people from their sins. This is the identity of the child born to the Virgin Mary about 2,000 years ago in history. And Matthew tells us these things so that everyone who reads them might know the truth about Jesus and might believe in him. And that includes us this morning. But not only did Matthew want us to believe the truths about Jesus, which he's emphasizing in this passage, he also wanted us then to put our trust in Jesus as well. He's told us that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And here we are, sinners who need to be saved. And no one else can do it but Jesus. He alone is the sinless man conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he might be our spotless lamb of sacrifice. He alone is the Christ, the son of David, who's come to bring God's promises of salvation to pass. He alone is God with us, able to rescue us forever from the power of sin and death and the devil and to make all things new. As Peter, one of his disciples, would say later on in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So every sinner in this room is invited by Matthew, compelled even, to respond to this story of Jesus' birth by trusting in this Christ child to save them from their sins. And for those of us who do believe in Jesus, who have been saved by him, who have become his people, this account of his birth in Matthew's gospel, I think, invites from us a variety of responses as well. First, it should compel us to humble reverence and amazement to consider afresh this truth that the child in Mary's womb was Emmanuel, God with us. As the Apostle John put it so amazingly in John 1.10, he said, He was in the world and the world was made through him. What? Philippians 2, 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul said, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, clung to for his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Who can fathom that type of humility and love? It absolutely confounds the wisdom of the world. It is a divine glory that is wholly other from us. Surely, the Christmas hymn rightly instructs us, saying, Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. O night divine, the night when Christ was born. 
Second, this account of Jesus' birth in Matthew's gospel should fill us with joy. To think that the child in Mary's womb was called Jesus. Yahweh saves because he was the Lord himself come down to us into the world as a man to save us from our sins. We were in a terrible state. We were guilty of great sin before God. We were under the sentence of death. We were enslaved to the corruption of our own nature, unable to free ourselves. If you think otherwise, just go home and try never to sin again. We were alienated from God because of our corruption and guilt. We were, as Paul said in Colossians 1, doing evil deeds. Ephesians 2, we were without God in the world, having no hope until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoiced. For yonder broke a new and glorious morn. There in Mary's womb was the Savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus because he would save us from our sins. And so our hearts rightly cry out, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Finally, this account of his birth in Matthew's gospel should lead us to have hearts of love and gratitude toward God. Consider again those old familiar words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Again, the old carol was right to call us to respond to our dear Savior's birth by saying, oh, come, let us adore him. What now could he not ask of us when he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men that he might be our ransom? Surely we owe him everything. And we should gladly give it to him out of hearts of love and gratitude. May we do so more and more. Well, today's Christmas Eve. And as we've gathered for worship, it's appropriate that we reflect upon the incarnation and what it means for a sin-cursed world of fallen men and women like us. I pray you've been enabled to do that afresh by considering Matthew's account of this incredible event. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are amazed, indeed not amazed enough, 
at what you have done in sending your son. How right it is, O oh God, for us to adore him, to give him our hearts in worship, to make our hearts his throne, that we would gladly come under his righteous rule. O oh Lord, we think of those words of the angel to the shepherds on the night that he was born. Glory to God in the highest. What else can we say? Lord, forgive our pride, our selfishness, all of our corruptions. You have done great things. We praise you. We thank you afresh this morning. Let this be a day of joy and gratitude for us, even in the midst of the sorrows that the holidays sometimes bring. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.